in theory, I'm live. Uh, hey, everyone. Welcome to the May the 4th. May the 4th be with you. Um, episode of Open Space here on Fraser Kane's YouTube channel. Um, this is like the first just me question show that we've been doing in probably, man, uh, six weeks or so. Uh, and part of the problem is just there's been so many amazing guests and we're probably going to go back to having a whole bunch of amazing guests like um, next next week we've got Moya McTeer and I've got a bunch of other people that I want to queue up as as guests. So again, I'm, I'm kind of torn. So, all right. So first I got to address a couple of uh, issues here, obviously, uh, which is like, what happened to all your content, Fraser? Uh, it's been mostly quiet. I mean, there's been a bunch of live stuff, but where's the scripted shows and where are the question shows? And there's a bunch of reasons for that, right? And so like, obviously the elephant in the room, the thing is obviously the, you know, the, the pandemic that shall not be named, um, which uh, unless we get demonetized. And that is, you know, I mean, that has just been tromping around through all of our work. Um, my focus, I mean, my job is the publisher of Universe Today. And so my focus has been to batten down the hatches to make sure that I'm able to um, keep everybody hired and and try to employ as many people as I can during this period. And so sort of running through all of the administration and just keeping that process going has been consuming the vast majority. And the second thing is, um, I, you know, I'm hanging out with my kids. <laughs> um, well, one kid, one kid is actually now she's like house sitting for someone and she's, so she's like, and they're trapped outside of Canada. And so now it's like, it's her house now it's, it's and dog. It's the weirdest thing, but my son is back here with me. And so we're spending a lot of time together, mostly, uh, you know, helping to coordinate his activities and try to keep him, focused. So that's been a big situation as well. And the big one, I think, is just like it has fricasseed my brain. Like there's just I, there's no way to describe this. My, you know, the anxiety, the grief, the focusing on just the number of of people who are dying and suffering around the world and what's yet to come is is very hard on on me wanting to sit down and write for long periods of time. And so um, that has been uh, surprisingly difficult to deal with. And so I've been able to sort of, you know, as long as I've been able to focus on, let's make sure that I can keep all of the team fed. Let's make sure that I can keep my son educated and healthy and happy. Um, that is that's been my focus and and it is hard and i you know i mean i think we're all going through this and we're all suffering the extent of this i mean for the people who are like for me i'm so fortunate that i was already running a virtual company and and so you know our revenue has dropped in half right and so um and so that's been that's been tough but it's like at least it's only it's merely half and not all, which I know a lot of people are stuck at home. No, um, uh, you know, you know, they're not sure where their next paycheck is going to come from. They're not going to be sure if they're going to be able to pay their rent, pay their mortgages. It's really hard out there. And I am so sorry for those of you who, who have already suffered so much. And 
we're gonna be suffering more and and this sucks and we're all in it together and so that is the part that you know when i think about the things that do get me up and do make me move forward and make me want to contribute i know that during this time it is the you know it is the entertainers like us who can bring you some joy and happiness and and if at least you know as we all put on our 15 pounds in the house while we wait for the uh for the quarantines to lift at least we can come out knowing a lot more and having a much better education and so i think that is you know that is the part and i feel much better now i think now i don't check the news very often anymore and i feel a lot more productive and a lot more encouraged about what we're doing so so that's where we're at uh, again i apologize um and i know a lot of you're going through a lot of difficult times so um but we must continue with the space so let's get into it all right aaron's asks what is your thought on the navy release of the video of the ufo do you believe it's aliens or experimental aircraft uh, that's a great question, and obviously everyone wants to know what I think about the uh, the Navy release of the aliens. Um, there are some uh, great, really comprehensive debunking videos now that have been produced. I haven't seen that. There's like three of them now. The one that I think is just the best is the is the Go Fast one, where because the Go Fast video, if you haven't seen it, like it looks like this like white object is moving really quickly zipping across the ocean at just flying above the waves at some ridiculous speed but everything you need to know about that object is baked into the camera itself it tells you the angle that the that the camera is facing the the direction that the aircraft is is flying when it see it sees it you see the uh the speed that everything is going the distance to the object from the aircraft and you know right away that in fact it's not flowing very short flying very short it's actually flying at a very high altitude and when you do all the math um the object is only moving very slowly and the object is very cold and so and the object is very small and <clears throat> it works out perfectly that it's a balloon like like there's no question that that thing is a balloon so um each one of these objects have been beautifully debunked and even if they weren't debunked right even if you're like okay um yeah there is no question whatever that thing is it is moving incredibly quickly and we don't know what it is that merely puts it into the category of ufo unexplained unidentified flying object when you say that you don't know what something is you then can't say but i know that it's aliens so um uh, I highly recommend, I will put some links in the show notes. And in fact, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be reaching out and doing an interview with one of the best debunkers of this. So stay tuned on, on that, I hope. Um, and we can talk about it more in depth and just go into the details. But I think so far, um, those three videos are, uh, are, are not convincing that they are aliens, right? Aliens means you the spacecraft lands and you get a chance to study it and you examine the material and you look at what the metals are made out of and and so far every piece of evidence that has ever been put forward does not show that it is aliens so um and neil you was asking on top of that right why no hot exhaust and infrared on the ufo moving into 120 knot wind so as i said right if you do the math if you triangulate the speed the position 
it's a cold balloon. There's no, it's not hot because there's no engine. It's not moving very quickly. It's just moving with the wind. So, um, uh, I think that it's, it's interesting to sort of see this go back and forth. And I think that it's just really important that we all always say, don't leap to conclusions, right? What is the answer? The answer is, I don't know. It is unidentified. And as I've said before, you cannot unidentify yourself to knowledge. They are in the opposite directions. So, all right, let's get on to some other questions. Uh, Jiro the hero, if an advanced civilization wanted to hide its techno signatures, how do you think that they would do it? Okay, so this is I mean, this idea of like, say you've got some civilization that has surrounded their star with a Dyson sphere, and they are consuming all of the energy that is coming off of their coming off of their star. Well, they are going to be changing the wavelength of the light that's coming from that star. So when you normally you would see the star and you'd be seeing it in, in the standard wavelength, right? From the radio, through the visible light, infrared, ultraviolet, into the x-rays and things like that. And that, that would look like a normal star. And when we look out into the universe, when we look out into the Milky Way, we see all of these stars look like stars, like our sun, like our sun would look from far away. But if you did surround a um, a star in some kind of megastructure, then what you would get is you would get all of that standard radiation would be blocked. And all that would be left is the heat that is, that is now leaving this shell. And so you would see an object that would be shining very brightly in the infrared spectrum. And so then the question is, how can you block heat? And the answer is, is that in the end, you can't. That according to the laws of thermodynamics, and as they say in The Simpsons, right, we obey all the laws of thermodynamics in this house, um, you can't block heat forever. If you try to block the heat that's coming out of your Dyson sphere, you cook. You roast inside like an oven. It just gets hotter and hotter and hotter. You have to let that heat get out. Now, you can imagine you've got a Dyson sphere, and it's letting out heat, and then you've got like another Dyson sphere, and it's letting out heat, and maybe you're attempting to shift the wavelength to something that is invisible for most people. So you shift the wavelength from bright light all the way out to radio, and then you have really long wavelengths. And maybe you can make your, your, your Dyson sphere essentially invisible. So that's one idea. The other idea is when you think about you've got this, this Dyson sphere, or you've got, let's say you've got like some giant megastructure or whatever, and it's orbiting around a star, and you want to try and prevent people from knowing that you got the star. One idea that's been proposed, and this is by, um, by the Cool Worlds folks, is you shine a laser out from like David Kipping and, and team. You shine a laser out at a star, when a star is watching your planet pass directly in front of the star, you shine a laser at their star that masks the signature. You essentially provide the reverse of your biosignature to them to say, so, so that you cancel out the signature that you have. And so you would have some powerful laser and it wouldn't be that energy intensive. And you can imagine that you are essentially as you're, you know, you've, you've identified all the potential stars that could be watching your, your planet pass in front of the star and you just shoot them all tip, 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 tap, 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 over the course of the year. And you mask the existence of your civilization from all of these other civilizations that are out there. But, if they were able to observe your planet directly with, a, with the kind of technology that we're about to have, like when the extremely large telescope comes online in about 
five years, six years, we will have the ability to directly observe planets orbiting other stars. So uh, you can't hide forever. You can't hide very well. And in the end, um, this is why one of the most productive ways potentially to look for um, alien civilizations is to look for them, for them to have completely closed up all of the stars in their entire galaxy. You would see a whole galaxy shining in infrared, which would be just an absolute telltale signature that there is an intelligent civilization, a type three civilization that has mastered their entire galaxy. Um, Neil Yu, what is the next step towards Louvoir and when? That's a great question. And so when we were at the American Astronomical Society back in January, man, it just feels like another lifetime ago. Um, uh, we got a chance to interview some of the leads of the principal investigators of all the next four great observatories. So Habex, Louvoir, um, the... Uh, Oh man, and now I'm forgetting all their names. Lynx and, and one other. Um, and we got a chance to interview uh, everybody for these great observatories. So um, we're going to be doing a whole episode on each one for each one of these uh, next great observatories. And hopefully we'll be able to answer a lot of those questions. But in general, we are waiting for the decadal survey, which is this time every 10 years where all of the uh, astronomers from you know, from the United States come together, they organize uh, and they figure out what their to-do list is in terms of science. And then they pass that along to NASA and the other agencies. And that just defines the next spacecraft that they're going to build. But we expect that what they want is the questions that the, the, the um, is essentially they want to know the answers to these questions that will be, you know, they will use these next great observatories to get to the bottom of this. Um, all right, so Emil Erickson, the president of the Mars Society insists that SpaceX can't land on the moon without starting the Kessler syndrome. Have you seen the new lander engines further up on the Starship? What could mitigate, mitigate the risks? All right, so that is a great question. And like if you were watching the show a couple of, um, I guess about a month ago or so, I had Phil Metzger on and he had done a bunch of the... Um, the math about what will happen when a large enough spaceship tries to land on the moon. And what you're going to get is you're going to get all this dust get kicked up into lunar orbit so that it acts like this shield around the moon. And then any other spacecraft that are in, in lunar orbit are going to get sandblasted as this material orbits, some escapes the moon and others will kind of rain back down at some other location. The more powerful the rocket is, the longer this material is going to be blasted out into space and, and floating around the moon. So it's a problem. There is no question that it is a big problem. And the solution is that you need a landing pad. Once you have a landing pad that's big enough that you have, that you have paved so that you are certain that you're not going to be kicking up any of this lunar dust, that's when a big spaceship like Starship can land on a regular basis on the moon. So you can imagine one landing on the moon uh, every few months. But if you go to an interval that's faster than that, you're going to start kicking up a lot of material and we're going to have a problem. 
uh, Leonard Lindstrom. So Fraser, where were you last night when over 6,000 of us were watching stainless steel frost over uh, the Starship SN4 loaded with locks in liquid methane live on NASA space flight? Uh, I, I don't sleeping, I think, no, we nine to 12 Pacific time. I think we were playing, uh, we were playing a role-playing game yesterday at that time. I was g game mastering uh, a, a Star Trek role-playing game that we're playing, which we're calling Borg Pickers. Um, and, uh, but yeah, so I wasn't watching, but we report on it. Um, and so I'm sure we'll have a story shortly. I want to see that thing fly. I mean, we like the fact that Starship, we talked about this, this last week when we talked to, to, to Das, that, that Starship now they've tested the cryo test. They've got one engine mounted in SN4. Maybe it's going to be SN5 is going to be the one that actually does the hop test, but we are getting closer and closer to actually seeing Starship fly. And that is just one more step coming to uh, us being able to actually uh, see this thing go to orbit and return from orbit. And I cannot wait. Zod of heaven, are we just too locked in to see our own tech to see that aliens won't be using anything like radio waves? So we get this question quite a bit, right? She's like, why are we so self-centered to believe that aliens are going to use our technology to communicate with us? Well, what else can you use, right? Um, uh, all we can use is the laws of physics as we understand them today, right? All we understand is we can see radio waves and we can see lasers. Maybe if we have a really powerful, uh, like a really good detector, we could sense neutrinos being sent at us from some other location. Maybe future gravitational wave observatories will allow us to detect gravitational waves as someone is trying to communicate in that way. So now we would assume that an advanced civilization would know uh, the laws of physics and would take pity on us, poor, sad, uneducated humans, humans, and fire a coherent laser beam at us to tell us that we're not alone. Like, just send us like a pity message. So, yeah, I mean, it doesn't hurt to try. Why not? Why not look, right? So take your radio dish, point it at a planet, point it at a star, hope to hear a signal. If you don't hear a signal, don't say that that doesn't mean that aliens are out there. It just means that we haven't seen them yet. And I can imagine if we were trying to think of a way that we could communicate with um a tribe that was hidden in on some island, right? And we would think of a way to communicate with them that we would suspect they would be able to see the message. We might take a boat and put a, you know, and, and light something on fire near their island to let them know that they're not alone. Um, we wouldn't pick up the phone and go, ha, those dummies, they can't answer the telephone, therefore they're not worthy. So that's what I would do. Uh, William Beckham, would it be possible to fuse the lunar soil so that it is not kicked up by exhaust from rockets? Yeah, I mean, the lunar regolith with a few interesting technologies um, would serve as a really good construction material. And so you would just go and take this lunar regolith, you would suck it into or scoop it up 
into your smelter, your, um, your concrete production facility, and then you would lay down concrete that was essentially dust free. And remember that, that that dust has been falling on the moon for billions of years. And so once you actually lay out a landing pad that's big enough, then you've then you're not you don't have to worry anymore about that dust, you're not gonna have fresh dust that's going to be blowing onto your landing pad um, with the wind, right? Like, like you may have to go out and, and vacuum it every 10 years or so, but until then you have, you've solved the dust problem. So lunar regolith we know acts like a, uh, is going to be a great construction material. And a lot of the things that we're going to be building on the moon will be just straight out of using, um, lunar regolith. There's all kinds of good stuff in it, right? There's silicon, there's aluminum, there's titanium, there's iron, tons of oxygen, obviously. And so you'll find that uh, magnesium, um, that, that there's no shortage of building materials on the moon. The problem is just that it is on the moon. Um, Aaron's asks, so W first is a twin of Hubble. If Hubble breaks, then W first will be the replacement of Hubble. No, um, W first is not a twin of Hubble. Exactly. Now, it is the same size telescope as Hubble. So, so way, the way this works was when um, NASA built Hubble and they launched Hubble a couple of years ago, I guess it was quite a while ago, actually, at this point, um, the National Reconnaissance Office gave NASA two Hubble-class telescopes that they weren't using anymore, uh, that they just figured that they, they, the technology was obsolete. So here you go, have a free Hubble Space Telescope. And NASA took one of these telescopes, the other is still mothballed, but they took the other one and they started to turn this into W first. So when you think about the Hubble Space Telescope, the Hubble Space Telescope is able to see across from the infrared spectrum, from the, from the near infrared spectrum, like when you see that heat signature in an infrared camera, through the visible spectrum and into the infrared spectrum. That's the capability of Hubble. And it is a very small field of view. W first is more into the infrared. So it's going to be able to see through gas and dust. It's going to be able to see farther, essentially back in time as it's able to see objects that are more red shifted away from us. Um, but it also has an incredibly wide field of view. And I forget the exact field of view. I should, I should learn this. Um, but it's going to see, you know, a much bigger swath of the universe all at the same time. So it's a very different instrument. Um, w first is, is more like a follow on telescope to Spitzer, although really James Webb is a follow on to Spitzer. So we're not going to have a real replacement for the Hubble space telescope until we get Louvoir, which we're looking, you know, 2035. So, so hang in there, Hubble. F zero, what's going on with the asteroid that just missed the earth recently? Uh, that happens all the time, right? There are asteroids just missing the earth all the time, big ones, little ones, um, you know, you have to change your definition of what just missed the earth means. So generally astronomers will measure the distance in, um, earth radii, um, or say distances to the moon. And a lot of the times as these asteroids come by, come close to us, you know, the moon is say 400,000 kilometers away. And one of these, these asteroids will come halfway between the earth and the moon. And that's a pretty close call, or it will be, um, twice the distance from the earth to the moon. So you'll have something an asteroid came by at 
I don't know, 800,000 kilometers away, a million kilometers away. That's very far. So um, this happens all the time. And there are a bunch of websites, there's a bunch of news agencies that clearly have figured out that every time they predict that there's going to be an asteroid coming close to the Earth, which is true, right? They come close to the Earth all the time that they can get a bunch of clicks and they can get a bunch of people to come and, and show up on their, uh, on their website. And that is kind of um, not scientific. Um, I wouldn't say it's super ethical. And so uh, we debunk this all the time with University Day. We're like, no, asteroid, you know, like just pick the date, 2006. It's not going to hit the Earth. In many cases, they're going to come. The, what's great about them is it's an opportunity to see an asteroid as it is coming close to the Earth if you have a telescope. So you can like take your telescope outside. If you know exactly where to watch, you can watch a dot move through your field of view very quickly. And it's pretty cool. But um, uh, you know, astronomers keep track of a list of objects that they are worried about. They have this thing called the Torino scale. And it goes from 1 to 10 with, and I forget which one it is, 1 being uh, one one side of it is apocalypse and the other side of it is um, maybe an asteroid in the far future is going to maybe cause a little bit of damage on a local level and and so they have a few objects that are they're keeping an eye on but apart from that <laughs> Arjun asks how close to earth is uh oh close um yeah so the the uh oh close is when i mean with asteroids you can never know their exact position into the future, right? Astronomers will look at the track of an asteroid and they will chart its position months, years, decades into the future. Beyond a certain point, the uncertainty of the position of the asteroid gets to the point that you, it just doesn't matter anymore. You don't know where it's going to be. And so as you're able to predict it more accurately, you get this cone of future locations for where this asteroid is going to be. And if that cone, if that probability cone goes across the Earth, so the Earth is at a spot when the asteroid is at the spot and it's a probability 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, but it's still within the probability, that's uh-oh, right? That's when you say, let's do more observations on this asteroid as it gets closer and see if we can get a better, we can narrow down the uncertainty to the point that we are certain that is no longer an issue. And at this point out, you know, astronomers have ruled out literally every large object in the solar system, all the large objects, all the, all the planet killers, right? All the Armageddon objects are, we are safe, but there's still, tens of thousands of objects that are smaller that are in the uh, 100 meters across size that still have to have their positions locked down. And there are some great new observatories that are in the works that will help us figure these out. DStonks333, question, how much damage will the COVID-19 pandemic cause to space exploration budget and put everything on hold? That's a, see, that's a great question. And, and we don't know what the future is going to hold for this pandemic across every field. I mean, right now we're seeing the, um, the launch of the, the SpaceX crew dragon on May 27th, which seems like it's still going to be going on on track, which is awesome. Right. Um, but 
uh, NASA is taking precautions. So we just we actually just got the message today that our photographer is not able to attend the launch. So I think a lot of people, you know, for precautions for COVID reasons, NASA is not going to let uh, journalists show up and actually cover the launch. So that sucks. Um, we're going to have to take pictures from NASA and not have our own shots. Um, and I'm sure a lot of you know, a lot of the other uh, people are going to be dealing with the same situation. And that's just from us, right? You're seeing like, how much work can you do on a spacecraft if you can't work on the spacecraft? So the stuff that's already far along is already on the spaceship, it's already on the rocket, it's already in the fairing, maybe you can launch that. Um, stuff that's in the design phase where you can work on it from home, they're able to control the rovers from home, that's pretty cool. Um, but if the stuff is in that in-between stage where you're actually trying to assemble hardware and you're trying to be in the same clean room with a bunch of other engineers, that might be difficult. So I think what we're going to see is we're going to see the stuff that's already very done. We're going to see that stuff continue on. You know, maybe there's going to be some delays as things are a little more complicated, but we're going to see that launch. We're going to see that completed. The stuff that is in the design stage, that's all still going to be able to move forward. But there's going to be this middle part, the stuff which should have gone into the engineering phase that's going to have to be kicked down the road. And so whatever time is lost now, we're going to see that that gap show up, the lag show up a year down the road, two years down the road as these various missions. But then, you know, we see that each individual mission has its own special uh, lag uh, all the time. Some missions are delayed, some missions come in on time and on schedule. So we may not see any appreciable difference in terms of space exploration. From a news standpoint, I mean, there's still tons and tons of news coming out. And now a lot of observatories were shut down, but we're seeing some observatories come back online again. Um, and the scientists have been very busy. I mean, a lot of the work they do is sitting at home with their computer crunching numbers. And so we're still seeing a ton of research coming out that we're able to report on for Universe Today. So there was like, what you know maybe back in march things were looking a little um difficult and now it feels like you know as we're in early may it feels like there's as much news as there ever is so uh my just my feeling as a news editor is right now the news is still flowing pretty fast so Sean Marson says, hey, Fraser, I wanted to let you know that my daughter, Sophia, got an A on her science report about Jupiter. We watched your show, and you answered a question that she had about space. Thanks for what you do. Awesome. That's, that's, that's what this is about, helping kids get A on their science report. Um, Tesla Ranger. How is the curvature of space determined? Uh, now, we've done a bunch of episodes about the curvature of space. And of course, the question, I mean, there's sort of two kinds of parts to this idea of curvature of space. One is the curvature of space-time as massive objects distort the space-time around them. And so, for example, the, the moon is orbiting around the Earth, not because the Earth is sucking the moon in, but because the Earth, the gravity of the Earth has distorted space-time so that the moon thinks it's following a straight line, but it's actually following a curved path. It's really just following the space-time. So that's sort of one way that you measure the the distortions of space-time, the curvature. But the other one is sort of this idea at the largest scales. When you say, when we say that 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 the universe is flat, 
right? Um, that what this what that really means is that if you go in any uh, direction, you're not going to return to your starting point, right? If you it, if you're here on Earth. Um, and you go in any direction, right? You return to your starting point. If you have parallel lines on Earth, they will um, they will converge, right? Or they will diverge depending on where you are on the Earth. But the measurements that have been made in space is that if you have two parallel lines, they will travel together in parallel forever. And so that's what astronomers say. That's why they say that it's flat. And the way they determine that is essentially they look at the universe in the largest scales and they map out triangles of space and they use trigonometry to calculate if there's some overall curvature to space itself. Like I said, we've done a whole video on this idea and like how do astronomers know that the universe is flat? And it's 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 a, it's incredible. It's an incredible feat that astronomers are able to go through to be able to make these determinations. Um, Julius Stanionis, uh, what if the overwhelmingly large telescope would be built? Would that be like Christmas to the power of 10? Um, Christmas birthday to the power of 10. So for people who don't know, right, the largest telescope that's in the works right now is called the Extremely Large Telescope. And I think it has like a 30, let me see, no, 40 meter size can't believe i don't normally i have this stuff in my head i feel bad um the extremely large telescope very big um but but as uh, the european southern observatory was working on their idea for the extremely large telescope they had a bigger one planned called the overwhelmingly large telescope and it was going to be 100 meters across and essentially 100 meters is the largest telescope that would be possible to be here on the surface of Earth. You know, at a certain point, the gravity of Earth would pull your telescope, warp your telescope so that you couldn't keep the optics without really super overbuilding it. And unfortunately, they decided that it was going to be too expensive because, you know, it was going to cost like a billion dollars. And they were like, no, 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 we can't spend one billion dollars. I forget the exact price, but but the, uh, the irony, of course, is that so much more money has been spent on things like James Webb. And yet, when you imagine the capability of a telescope like the overwhelmingly large telescope, it would just be mind-bending. So, um, I, uh, it's, it makes me sad. Um, and in fact, we did an episode about um, what if you built the overwhelmingly large telescope on the moon, um, just to be ridiculous. And you can kind of imagine the capability where you have no atmosphere and no gravity distorting your telescope and, um, you know, just this incredible view from the dark, from the far side of the moon. So, um, Darren Clark, how confident are you that we will see boots on Mars in your lifetime? Well, you know, <laughs> as I get older, right? Um, and as my robot body doesn't show up, uh, then, you know, we wonder what that means in my lifetime. So really, I think that we will see humans walk on Mars in the 2030s. So I know that the plan is that SpaceX is going to send the Starship to Mars in 2024, maybe 2026, 
uh, boom, you've got 100 people showing up on Mars um, and starting the Mars city. I am more skeptical, and I think it will take longer because it's going to be harder and there's going to be more uh, challenges to make this work. So, but I do feel like like they're going to try a bunch of attempts. They're going to work out the kinks. And at some point in the mid 2030s, we're going to see probably a starship. If I had to sort of pick the system that I think will actually make the journey, I think it'll be a starship. Um, now it might be a starship carrying something else, right? It's going to be a starship carrying some NASA lander on board. Uh, and then and the starship is going to do the most of the journey and then drop the lander off or whatever. But I do feel like we're going to see humans walk on Mars in the mid 2030s. So like if I had to pick a day, 2035, I guess, I'm not sure if, if that gives us a window. So I have to pick which window it's going to be. Um, uh, Rami Iman says, does NASA or CSA see any opportunities in the rising interest towards space in the Middle East and Arab region for collaboration? Now, I don't know specifically what relationships NASA or Canadian or the Chinese Space Agency are having with the Middle East, but I know that that the Middle East is putting a lot of emphasis. I mean, there is a plan from is it the United Arab Emirates um, to create a city on Mars. And their plan is to send a lot of people to Mars to establish a base at some point, um, I think, you know, by the middle of this century. So there are there's already a ramp up of a lot of really interesting missions that are coming out of the Middle East. And I would expect, um, you know, as, as they have more money, well, I guess it all depends on oil prices. Um, but you can definitely see, I mean, I think that for a lot of these countries that are rich in natural resources. The writing is obviously on the wall that you need to shift from being uh, a civilization that is based on on pulling dead dinosaurs out of the ground and lighting them on fire to something that is more sustainable over the long term. And of course, we see that with the oil shocks uh, right now, how how precarious that situation is. And so what's the future? The future is robotics. The future is computers. The future is renewable energy. The future is space exploration. Um, so I think we're going to see this is a long term. It's the same thing we're seeing in China, that that this is the high ground. And so I think we're going to really see um, these various organizations try to figure this out. So if he's gotten flower, do you think that Elon will die on Mars? Um, I, I think he'll try. But um, uh, I, I mean, I've talked about this quite a bit before, which is that, that there is a sense of wonder and, and accomplishment and adventure and achievement to try to go to Mars and try to live on Mars. And I mean, we are experiencing some version of that right now where where we're all trapped in our houses and this is kind of what it's going to feel like except you can't even go outside without having to put on your big spacesuit and get into your you know take an hour to get your spacesuit on and go through all of the protocols etc to be able to do that so so if this doesn't feel like fun then you might not be cut out for for that kind of an adventure, right? Um, 
And so, you know, you don't see people trying to go and live in Antarctica. I mean, Antarctica is a thousand times more habitable than Mars is, more habitable than the moon is. And yet we sort of have that worked out. Like, I get it. You know, you're in, it's cold and there's no food and you're desperately trying to survive every single day. And that, I think, gets a little old after a while. So... So I think that 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 for the moon, like I don't see cities on the moon until our technology just gets so ridiculous that that it's easy. I see a research center. I see a station on the moon like McMurdo at at, at Antarctica where people go and are supported by a tremendous amount of technology and it's probably funded by governments where they can go and do really interesting research on the moon run some telescopes and and things like that, right? And then I see with Mars a similar thing. Wouldn't it be amazing if there was a permanently inhabited base on Mars where you've got every two years another group of astronauts fly to Mars and they go to the base and they spend, they do their, their tour for 18 months on Mars and they do more interesting and more complicated exploration efforts and then they hop in their spaceship and they come home and they will have incredible stories to tell us and they will have learned a tremendous amount about Mars. But for the average person, you, like, if you feel that is in your heart to carve out an existence from an environment that is difficult, and I'm looking at you, Cody, um, uh, then, then get to work now. I mean, you can experience most of it already, right? Which is like, you just go, go somewhere that's far away from the internet that, that you have to, that you're going to have a really hard time surviving. Um, but you still like, by all means, drive your truck into town and resupply and like, just see if you dig it. Right. And if you are, then maybe you are cut out to go and try and survive on Mars. And there's a bunch of people on Earth who are. And I can't wait to watch them try. And I will uh, be cheering for their success. But it's not me. And I think for a lot of people who think it is them, it's not them. What what is for us is, you know, to to have the comfort to be able to walk outside and breathe the air. So uh, so we'll see. I think. I think we're going to have to find that balance. And then over time, as, as we just get more and more capability, as the technology gets more powerful, as, the, as our ability to live in space becomes more effortless, then we will see us expanding across the solar system. But that is, that's hundreds of years into the future when we have that kind of effortless um, habitation in the solar system. And that's the difference, right? We're not there yet. Um, we can go live in the desert, in the, in the southwest desert, um, a place that's very inhospitable. And we can do it now essentially effortlessly, right? Because we've got all kinds of incredible air conditioning technology and we've got cars and we've got, we've got infrastructure and roads and highways and, you know, uh, uh, desalination systems and all that kind of stuff that makes it so our technology allows us to do this kind of thing. And we'll need something similar, some level of similar technological advancement before we can try to live there. All right, let me continue on. Uh, <laughs> 
apologies. Uh, so F0, can a golf ball travel at the speed of light or turn into a black hole? So no, nothing can travel at the speed of light. Um, even you know, if it has mass, it can't travel at the speed of light. Will it turn into a black hole? No, but the answer is incredibly complicated. Um, and we have answered it, I think, in a question show, but um, let's see. Uh, Bill Nash over on Twitch. Hey, Twitch. Um, uh, what do you see as the biggest potential positive change coming from technologies like Starlink? And will it be complete before James Webb? Uh, yeah, I mean, James, uh, Starlink is already, I mean, from what I've heard, Starlink is planning to go into a closed beta test in about three months. Ooh, Elon, pick me, pick me. Um, and then an open beta in about six months. And so in theory, within about six months, we're going to be able to start signing up for Starlink, the ability to get high-speed internet from anywhere on Earth. And by the end of this year, it should be, in theory, again, pretty robust, where you will be able to sign up for the service and you'll be able to use that. So that is going to happen before James Webb launches, for sure. Um, uh, what is the biggest positive change? Well, I mean, here we are in, um, uh, in a time where our economy has been shattered and everybody has to go and move home. And for those of us who live in fairly, uh, you know, high density areas, like I live in a place where I have incredible internet, wonderful internet, so fast. Um, and I don't have to pay very much for it, right? I pay whatever. I pay $100 a month for 600 megabits down. Um, but what about a person who lives on a farm? When, I, th I forget the number, something like a quarter of Canadians just have no access to high-speed internet at all, right? And they, and they are farmers. And they, there's um, various businesses and even just small communities, right? Like, why do you have to, to be a part of the modern society but you also have to move into the big city. Why can't we distribute that load across the country? And a big part of it is, is that in the past, humans have always needed to concentrate in these big cities because that's where the jobs were, that's where the, the infrastructure was, that's where everything is. And, but now we don't have to, right? And so, yeah, I think if Starlink existed a year ago, then a ton of people who were who are now like trapped at home and they have no way to make money at all will suddenly would would have had a way to be able to access the internet high-speed internet and be able to do work um now the question of course is it has to be it has to be cheap it has to be uh, affordable and musk has said that it's going to be uh you know <laughs> uh we're gonna wait for the rubber to hit the road on this one right uh, what's it going to do to astronomy? It's going to make astronomy worse. Yeah. Um, now, the latest version, the latest launch, they've, they've launched one version of the satellite where they're trying to have the, um, there's like a, a visor that will block the sunlight from glinting off the, the satellite. And maybe that's going to drop it by a couple of, of uh, magnitudes, which would be incredible. Match that with the darker painting that they do on them and maybe some other technologies that will make these things you know, go from being very bright to being moderately, you know, a moderate nuisance, uh, which would be wonderful. But again, we have to weigh this, right? 
um, affordable access for half of humanity to access the internet to a, a degradation of the uh, our ability to do astronomy. Weigh them. Um, so the, uh, the ability for half of humanity to access the internet has to take a higher priority than the than a degradation of astronomy, right? Um, unfortunately. So as an astronomer, as an amateur astronomer who, who literally has to yank trails of satellites out of my pictures, it sucks. I hate it. Um, makes me mad, but I get it. I get the bigger picture. And just imagine, you know, we want that, um, uh, we want that future, uh, you know, where there's like great big space stations and starships flying. Those things are going to be reflective. So, you know, we've just, uh, it's only begun. They, we, we are going to lose the skies one way or the other. Um, forward synthesis. How long until we find and confirm the existence of an exomoon around an exoplanet? There are those who believe that, that an exomoon has already been discovered. Of course, this is a moon orbiting a planet, orbiting another star. And when you think about how difficult it is already to be able to see the, the, the planet, it's even more complicated to be able to see the, the moon. And so the, the kind of situation that you're going to need is you're going to need like a very small star, like a red dwarf star, a very large planet, and then the moon positioned perfectly as it's going around where the, where the star or the planet blocks some of the light from the star and the position of the moon also affects more or less the light of the star. And it's kind of inevitable at this point that, that astronomers will detect one of these exomoons. It's going to take more observations. And there are some just absolutely incredible, I mean, the, the Cheops uh, instrument right now, the one by the European Space Agency, which has already begun its observations, its job is to characterize exoplanets using the transit method. And so it's going to be watching thousands of exoplanets and try to just give astronomers a lot more information. So I wouldn't be surprised if Cheops is the, is the telescope that actually confirms the existence of a moon around another planet, which is such a great idea, right? That brings in this whole idea of habitable moon. So even if the, the, the planet is uninhabitable, suddenly the, uh, the, the, the moon orbiting the planet could be habitable. And in fact, some people think that it actually would be more habitable, it'd be a better place because you would get quite significant tides flowing back and forth on the planet. Oh, the moon orbiting the planet. I think it's very complicated. Um, so uh, stay tuned. I'm, I'm excited about this as a potential into the future. Isn't it cool that, that we are here in this moment where we don't know everything about this yet. <clears throat> From when I started this job, we only knew of a handful. Like I think we knew our first planet was like in 1995. And so I started this job like four years after. And so we knew like less than 20 planets, I think, when I started this job. Now we know more than 4,000. Um, we will be knowing hundreds of thousands, millions of planets within the next couple of decades. And we will find exomoons and we will find just every possible uh, combination and we get to watch this all unfold in real time, which is incredible. William Beckham, have a drink, Frizzy. Yeah, I, I forgot to bring my water. So I, I, I got 10 more minutes. I can make it. 
a little parched. So, um, there you go. People are talking about, oh, okay. Um, uh, Nicholas Alt is saying, I saw four satellites in the same trajectory go over at about five minutes a week ago. Was that probably a recent Starlink launch? Maybe. Um, the Starlinks, actually, when they're, when they're recent, you see them, there are about like a train. Uh, some of them are a little brighter. Others are less bright. And so you can see, so if you saw four, if you looked at, the, looked at them with a pair of binoculars, you would probably see the rest of them. And so you see this train of 60 satellites all boop, 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 boop. It's quite, it's quite, it's very cool to see. I mean, yeah, absolutely. It means that your skies are getting worse, um, but it's cool to see them. Um, Aaron's, do you believe that phrase, we're born too early or too late for space travel? Uh, it depends on what you want, right? I think that we are all, you will always, like, you will always be born too early for the future. Um, when I think about the kind of technology that we have today, and I think about how, say, my mother and my father were both, both very technologically advanced in their, you know, my, my mom used computers, um, but she passed away really before the smartphone era, um, being able to appreciate really the power of the internet to this level. Um, my dad, you know, he was a child of the Apollo era. He watched them land on the moon. Um, but you know, even now as I, as I'm 48, um, thinking about what, what comes in the 2035s, we wait for those humans to walk on the, on Mars. Um, what's going to happen in a hundred years and a thousand years? Uh, you know, people always ask, you know, if you could travel into the past or into the future, my answer is always into the future. Like I don't even have to think about it. You know, do you want to travel into the past or the future? Future, me. I want to go into the future. I want to see what the future looks like, because in general, also the future is better. I know people f try to fear monger and scare you, but the reality is, is that we have less poverty, less death, less war, less. Um, I would have said less pandemic, but you know. Every now and then, um, we have blips, um, <clears throat> but but the world gets better and better year after year after year, and I can't wait to see what the future of the world is going to look like, and I hope I can be around for it as long as possible. <clears throat> um, <laughs> Bill Nash uh, on Twitch asks between getting to Mars and Starlink, what kind of infrastructure is proposed to beef up communications to Mars, such as would be needed to keep colonists entertained, educated, and not eating each other? Has Martian Disney Plus been designed yet? <clears throat> um, yeah, so I mean, right now, communication with Mars is actually very difficult. The, the spacecraft have their transmitters, and you have these 90 meter telescopes here on Earth that are able to receive the signals from them. Um, and there, uh, you know, like that is, that's what communication with Mars looks like is a 90 meter telescope. People always say, you know, like we can communicate with space, you can communicate with the Voyagers and yet I can't receive a phone on my cell phone. Well, you know, if you're willing to carry around a 90 meter, uh, antenna, then you would be able to receive phone calls on your cell phone. Um, so you would need really big dishes 
on both Earth and Mars. And when you think about the times when Mars goes on to the other side of the sun, you would need some kind of transmitter that would be able to transmit data. It would have to bounce off the asteroid belt or something or go to Venus and then go to Mars. So there's going to be a lot of challenges to being able to communicate back and forth. Of course, there is the time delay. You know, if you're going to play, you have ping times of of 20 minutes to 40 minutes while you try to play a game with uh, with your friends from between Mars and Earth, which, you know, you won't be able to be a competitive gamer at those rates. So it's going to be tough. You're going to you're going to see like data is going to be sent back and forth in terms of archives. So all of YouTube will be transmitted to Mars once a day. And so you'll get yesterday's YouTube. So it'll feel a bit like you're reading newspapers or watching old television shows again, because the delays. So it's so it's interesting to think about what kind of infrastructure it's going to take, but you will need big, um, big dishes that will be able to make these transmissions. Arjon, do you think the century will be more about advances in technology, medicine, or engineering? Uh, all of the above. I think the biggest, the biggest technology advance that we are still experiencing, the one that is going to leverage everything, is our ability to collaborate via the internet. That that is the, that is like a multiplier across everything that we do, and you can just see, for example, right now, as the the scientists of the entire planet like I wonder how many scientists right now are working on on coming up with a solution to COVID-19 a hundred thousand right they are publishing their papers they're being published uh completely open onto various servers they are they are communicating back and forth and they are collaborating at a planetary scale so yeah, our interconnected civilization caused this problem. And yet also our ability to communicate is going to get us out this the other side. And and that is that just unlocks everything, uh, our ability to learn from each other, our ability to. And so like every method that slows down the data that doesn't free the data, as someone might say, uh, is really enraging. It's really frustrating. That every whoever wants to hold the data back, that wants to try to stop it from being able to be communicated back and forth, to let people collaborate and do research and share their findings, uh, they're just getting in the way of progress. Uh, Horizon Brave, do you think the Starlink could be used as a relay between the Moon or Mars? I, I mean, in theory, but I mean the Starlink, the Starlink uh, antenna are going to be facing down. And so they're really not going to be um, that useful.